following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. My name is Craig, and uh, I'm glad you're here this morning on this Labor Day weekend. Those of you that are in the room, those of you that are watching online, thank you for being with us this morning. I don't know if I look any different to you this morning. Uh, if I look any wiser, maybe I sound a little bit smarter to you, or maybe I just look a little more frail and tired and old. But this is the first time I'm standing on this platform as a 60-year-old. I can't believe, yeah, thank you, thank you. I've, I finally crossed the threshold and I'm 60. And as a child, I just thought 60 sounds so old. But now that I'm 60, I don't think so anymore. It doesn't really feel that old. Can I get a whoop whoop from the 60 plus in the room? Come on. Yeah, it's not, it's not, not, but I did think by 60, I would be a little wiser, that I would be a little more mature. Turns out not so much. I still laugh at pull my finger jokes and, um, you know, I still uh, uh, just, what was the other thing I still do? Oh yeah, I still, (laughs) this is what happens when you turn 60 people. (laughs) Still have to hold my nose to take cough syrup like I'm four years old. Uh, but, uh, you know, my, my oldest uh, comes to me and he says, hey, dad, now that you're 60, we really need to sit down and do your estate planning. Uh, I need to figure out, you know, what's happening when you die and I need to know your passwords. And I'm like, son, if you figure out my passwords, will you tell me my passwords? Because I spend half my time trying to guess my passwords. It has something to do apparently with my first dog. I'm not sure what that's all about, but I, if you figure them out, let me know. And then my youngest came to me and actually said this across the dinner table. Hey dad, do you remember when grandmother died and you and your siblings took that money and y'all used it to take all of us on a trip for a cousin's ski trip and how fun that was. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I was just thinking, I think when you die, um, me and the brothers might use your money to go to uh, Europe and have a trip with our families. And I just looked at him like, okay, um, I'll miss you too, son. Uh, But I did have one friend who framed it a little bit differently for me. We went to dinner uh, over my birthday week and he said, hey, what do you think you're going to do with the second part of your life? And at first I thought he was being sarcastic, a little bit snarky, like he tends to be. But then as he explained it, he said, no, 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 no. Uh, your adult life, right? You kind of enter adulthood in your 30s and you could live to 90. And so at 60, you're kind of at the halfway point. So what do you think the second half looks like for you? And I got to admit, I really appreciated that perspective because it does make you think about things differently. If you're, you know, one way thinking about it as I'm winding things down and the other way you're thinking about it as I'm in the middle of the game and I want to feel like I'm in the middle of the game. And so as I thought about it, it was pretty challenging, but I thought, you know what, as I complete this second half, I just want to make sure that I am keeping the main thing, the main thing. That the things that matter to Jesus are the things that matter to me. Because in the end, the things that matter to Jesus will be the things that matter. I continue to be haunted by that D.L. Moody quote that Barry shared with us about a year and a half ago. Where D.L. Moody says, our greatest fear should not be a failure. But of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. 
So how do we do this? How do we make sure we're living a life of significance? Well, luckily, we don't have to sit around here this morning and guess and brainstorm together. Jesus made it pretty clear in the Sermon on the Mount what we should be going after. He said this in Matthew 6. He said, you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. He says, you want to live a life that matters? You need to prioritize my kingdom. Another version says it this way, make your top priority God's kingdom and his way of life and all these other things will be given to you as well. But what exactly does that mean? What does that look like in my everyday life, in your life? Where do we even start? And that's what I want to talk about today. The starting place for going after the kingdom. Because I want to suggest that seeking the kingdom has to start with seeking the king. And knowing the king and understanding the king's heart. Because without a king, there is no kingdom. And honestly, the kingdom part, that's kind of the easy part. We all love the kingdom part, right? We all want God's kingdom to come. We want a God-centered kingdom. A a world where wrongs are finally made right. Where justice prevails. A world where there is no more hatred for each other. and, And people love each other. And there's no war or crime or sadness or sickness or COVID. Bring that kingdom on, God. But I just wonder if we don't get a little apprehensive when it comes to the king part. Because a king implies rule and reign. And a king implies that I may have to submit myself to that king's rule and reign. And we don't really like the idea of submitting ourselves to anything or anyone other than ourselves, do we? Bottom line is, I want to be in charge. I kind of want to be in charge of you but I most definitely want to be in charge of me. I want to decide what I think is important and how I want to help build the kingdom and how I want to use my time and my talent and my treasures to do it. But but too often, I think we end up just kind of dabbling in the kingdom of God. It almost is like a hobby for us as we focus our best efforts and attention on building our own little kingdom. See, I'm happy to give $36 a month to World Vision to sponsor a child on the other side of the world because it makes me feel better when I have to decide, do I want to trade in my $1,000 iPhone 11 for the 13 that's coming out in September because it might have a little bit better camera? See, I think the first step in seeking the kingdom of God is recognizing that there is a king who reigns over this kingdom. And this king wants to have final say in all matters in my life. And in your life, Jesus prayed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Jesus's prayer is that there would be a group of redeemed people who would sit under his rule and authority and live their lives that way on this earth. That this isn't a democracy. This is, he's not wanting your opinion. He's not wanting your vote. He's not seeking your permission. He isn't just wanting you to acknowledge his title. This is about living under the authority of the king. Giving him the final say in your life. And that's where the rub comes in. Because we love to think about Jesus as our friend, right? We sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. And he is that. And we love to talk about Jesus as our savior and how Jesus rescued us. And he did. And he is all of that. But Jesus as king, Jesus as Lord over my life, Jesus as the final authority. I'm not so sure about that. Okay, Jesus, uh, I'll give you final authority over the things that we see eye to eye on, the things we agree on. I'll give you final decision making over the things that make me comfortable. But you see, that's not how a ruler rules. It's not the ruler's job to adjust to the rulee. 
It's the rulee's job to adjust to the ruler. Pastor Tony Evans said this, that there is one question that we should ask as we approach any and every issue and situation in our lives. And it's this, Jesus, what do you want me to do about this? Jesus, what do you want me to do about this? And then he says, once you discover God's will in that area, it ought to just be a quick two word response. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Let's practice that together. On the count of three, we're all going to say it. Yes, Lord. One, two, three. Yes, Lord. See, that's what it means to live under the rule and reign of a king. And everything in us wants to fight against that, doesn't it? Because we have this rebellious sin nature in all of us. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm in charge of me. We don't even really want a king. And if you don't believe me, just come spend a day at our preschool in the toddler class and see how well they respond to the authority in their class. Because their response is typically what? No. We still use a phrase around our house from a toddler who was at our school probably 28 years ago. Her name was Olivia. She called herself Yaya. And one day the teacher asked her to do something and she just buckled up with that teacher and she stuck her finger in the teacher's face and she said, no, you know talk. Yaya talk. And so still at our house, if Kathy asked me to do something, take out the trash, do the dishes, there's occasions where I'll say, no, you know, talk, yaya talk. Because we all have a little bit of yaya in us, don't we? But I think there's another reason that we resist the kingship of this kingdom. I think it's because underneath it all, we don't understand the kind of king that we really have. We think of earthly kings, uh, kings who throughout the pages of history have used their position and their power for their own use to abuse and oppress people and, and to build their own kingdoms and accumulate wealth and their quest for pleasure and for power. The entire historical record of human kings is nothing but a record of tyranny and tragedy and slavery. No wonder we recoil and shrink back from the idea of a king. But what if? What if Jesus really is an entirely different kind of king? I think it's the pri- precisely the point he was trying to make when he was brought in to Pilate for questioning. You remember this scene? He comes in and Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers, are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? And Pilate said, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered to you, you to me. What have you done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? And Jesus answered, you rightly say that I am a king. And I think too often we look at this exchange and think, oh yeah, Jesus is the king of a different kingdom. It's heaven he's talking about, right? The streets of gold, the pearly gates. We'll get there someday, Jesus But how does that help me now? How is that relevant to my life right now? But I think Jesus was talking about so much more than just his heavenly, the the kingdom. He's talking about his entire kingdom. And I think what he's saying is, hey, my kingdom is fundamentally different than the kingdoms of this world. And he was a completely different kind of king. And when he says, the reason I came was to bear witness to the truth. Another version says it this way, to demonstrate the truth. He's saying, look, I am here to demonstrate, to live out in front of your very eyes, what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. Jesus is the kingdom personified. And as we watch him, 
As we watch how he lived out his life, we're we're introduced to just how unique this king really is. And so with our remaining few minutes this morning, I want to introduce you to this king. I want to explain to you what I think makes him so different and unique, why he's different than every other king out there and why he can be trusted and why he deserves our complete allegiance and devotion. And the first thing I want you to know about our king, my king, is this king rules with grace. This is a king who rules with grace. The whole reason we call this story the gospel story, the good news story, is because it's about a king who rules with grace. And we all need a little grace, don't we? Because we've all messed up. We don't like to admit it. We like to blame other people for it. Heck, we'll go all the way back to Adam and Eve and try to blame them for it, right? It's their fault. It's kind of like Gary Martin in my seventh grade middle school class at Crockett Junior High. He would cut up in the cafeteria and the vice principal, Mr. Walton, would come into the cafeteria and Mr. Walton was probably the scariest vice principal ever on the planet. And he would come in and he would make us all line up, all seventh grade boys, line up against the wall, put your nose against the wall for the entire rest of the eating time in the cafeteria. Very humiliating. And what would we be thinking? Well, this isn't fair. Gary did this. Why are we being punished for what Gary did? And sometimes I think we look back at the story of Genesis and Adam and Eve and we think, well, this isn't fair. This was their fault. I mean, how hard was this for them? They got to run around a tropical paradise naked all day and they couldn't keep their eyes off of some lousy piece of fruit. Come on, guys. And now it seems like we're all being punished for it. We're all against the wall with our nose against it. We're all paying the price. But let's be honest, Adam and Eve aren't my problem. I'm my problem. They may have been the first, but it's probably just become because they were the first here. Because I know me. I know the thoughts I've had. I know the things I've said, the things I've done. Rebellion is alive and well in this heart of mine. And the truth is every one of us has that. Every one of us has something in us that just causes this wave of embarrassment and shame to come over us. Uh, The thing that you hope no one finds out about you here, Romans 3 is right when it declares we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And then you jump ahead to Romans 6 and it says the penalty for that sin is death. We all deserve death, which can be pretty depressing. But then out of nowhere, you jump to John chapter one and John says this, out of his fullness, We have all received grace on top of grace. Another version says it this way. And from him, we receive grace heaped upon more grace. It's kind of the the Beverly Hillbillies translation, right? We've received a heaping helping of God's grace. And the fact that we're alive and breathing this morning is only because of the grace of God. That word grace has been defined as unmerited favor. It's undeserved. The word literally means to stoop over in kindness. Not typically what you think of with a king, is it? But it's what our king did. He stooped over in kindness. He stooped down from heaven where he'd been surrounded by angels 24-7 sitting on a throne. And he left all of that to come down here as a baby to enter the muck of our chaos in this world so that he could rescue us out of it. I love the way author Max Licato describes it. He says, while the creatures of earth walked unaware, divinity arrived. Heaven opened herself and placed her most precious one in a human womb. 
The omnipotent in one instant made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God as a fetus, holiness sleeping in a womb, the creator of life being created. God was given eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys, and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluids of his mother. God had come near. See, most kings would just destroy those who rebel against them, but not our king. He came down here for us. Paul says it this way. God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from the beginning of time to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. See, the message of the gospel, it's not how to live a good life. It's not how to clean up your act so that God will think better of you. The reason it's good news is because it's all about what God has done for us in Christ. And that's what makes Christianity different from all other religions in the world. Most others are about what we have to do in order to get to God. The hoops we have to jump through to appease an angry God. But Christianity is all about what God did to get to us. And that just goes against everything in us, doesn't it? I mean, it's why the Buddhists have their eightfold plan. The Hindu have their doctrine of karma, the, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of law. All of those are ways to try to earn God's approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love without condition, unconditional. The Christian faith is about God descending to us in grace. God didn't meet us halfway. He came all the way. And because of what he did, we don't have to do anything. It's already been done for us. That is the grace of our king. Second thing I want you to know about my king is that he came to serve, not to be served. The scene that immediately comes to mind, I think, is that night in the upper room with his friends. And they're all arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus uh, Looks around, Luke tells the story, he says, the disciples bickered over which one of them would be considered the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus interrupted their argument saying, the kings and men of authority in this world rule oppressively over their subjects, claiming they do it for the good of the people. They're obsessed with how others see them. But that's not your calling. You will lead by a different model. The greatest one among you will live as one called to serve others without honor. The greatest honor and authority is reserved for the one who has a servant heart. The leaders who are served are the most important in your eyes, but in the kingdom, it is the servants who lead. Am I not here with you as one who serves you? And then he showed them what he was talking about. Because John tells us he quietly gets up. He takes a wash basin and a cloth and he begins to go around and wash the disciples feet. One disciple at a time, this menial uh, kind of disgusting task that was typically relegated to the lowliest of servants. The king of all kings once again stoops down and begins to wash. Can you imagine being in that room? The silence just had to be deafening. And everything in me wants to say, Jesus, don't do it. They don't deserve this. James and his brother, John, they were just arguing over how to get special treatment from you. And Thomas is going to even doubt who you are. Peter's going to deny you three times. None of them are going to be standing with you in Pilate's court. Don't do this. They don't deserve it. And then we read in John 13, when he had finished washing their feet, 
He put on his clothes and returned to his place. When he had finished washing their feet, all of their feet, no feet were excluded. Apparently, Jesus washed the feet of Judas. Jesus Jesus washed his betrayer's feet. What kind of king does that? Our king is a gracious king. Our king is a servant king. And finally, I want you to know our king sacrificed everything for us. He sacrificed everything for you. Jesus said, for even the son of man didn't come expecting to be served by everyone, but to serve everyone and to give his life in exchange for the salvation of many. The climax of the biblical narrative crescendos at the moment on the cross. I think in church, we often think that moment is Easter and Easter is a great big moment. But Easter, I think would argue is, is what validates and vindicates what happens on the cross. Easter is the reason that we know what we believe is trust can be trusted is true. But it is the cross where the kingdom story culminates. It is the cross at what Jesus came for. Every great story has a moment like this. Dorothy with the Wizard of Oz. Peter Pan hanging off the plank with Captain Hook. Anna being left dead by Hans. I mean, can you tell I work around children a lot? That moment where you're on the edge of your seat and you can barely catch your breath. This is that moment. This is why Jesus came. Listen to his own words. He says, even though I am torn within and my soul is in turmoil, I will not ask the father to rescue me from this hour of trial. For I have come to fulfill my purpose, to offer myself to God. From this moment on, everything in this world is about to change. For the ruler of this dark world will be overthrown. And I will do this when I'm lifted up off the ground and when I draw the hearts of people to gather them to me. From this moment on, he says, everything in this world is about to change. And then it says, he said this to indicate that he would die by being lifted up on a cross. It was the cross that became this king's throne. It's here that he sacrificed everything for us. Sociologist Tony Campolo says the most vile, evil, despicable human being to ever live isn't who you might think it is. It's not Hitler or Mussolini or Ted Bundy or Charles Manson. Campolo argues that the most evil man who ever lived was Jesus in this moment. Because it's here that he took on the sins of the entire world. That Jesus, not bound by time and space, could see all across the cosmos from the beginning of time to the end of time. He could see every person in every time at every place. Means he could see you and he could see me. And as he hung on that cross and he thought about me and all my acts of rebellion, all my, all my sin, all of my um, ugliness that I don't want anybody to know about. He looked at it. He saw it. And he said, give me that. I'll take that. You can put that here. And the weight of it was placed on his shoulder. He takes on our sin, but we get his righteousness. We've learned from the story of scripture that the essence of our sin was us trying to take his place on the throne. But salvation comes from the fact that he was willing to take our place on the cross because it's my sin that deserved death. It's my sin that put him on the cross, but it's his love that kept him there. While the Roman guards and religious leaders stood around and they mocked him, you say you're a king, save yourself, come down from there. Jesus revealed his kingship by not by coming down from the cross to save himself, but by staying on the cross. 
to save all of us. It's not that he couldn't come down from the cross. It's that he wouldn't come down from the cross. And the reason was love. The cross is the greatest display of Christ's sacrificial love. And as he hung on that cross, Jesus was in complete control as the sovereign king. It is the throne from which the king of the world reigns. Jeremy Treat, author, says it this way. Jesus is the king on the cross. Uh, forgiving sin, defeating evil, establishing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The cross is neither the failure of Jesus's messianic ministry, nor is it the prelude to his royal glory. It is the apex of his kingdom mission. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, a king who dies on a cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. And I would agree. Because while the kingdoms of this world are built on power, established with force. The kingdom of God was built on grace. It was established with service and self-sacrifice from our king, Jesus, this different kind of king, a king that deserves our devotion and our allegiance. But here's the deal. He's not going to force himself on you. He won't barge through the door of your life and demand your allegiance. Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus invites you to enter into his kingdom, to voluntarily submit yourself to his authority, to allow him to reign as king over your life. So my question this morning is, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Some of you have been struggling with God your entire life. You've been trying to hold it all together. You've been trying to keep control over everything. And in your most honest moments, you know it's not working. It's time to surrender. Today could be your day to make Jesus your king. To finally and fully give him all. This gracious, loving, compassionate, all-powerful king. This could be your wave the white flag moment. You just simply confess, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I can't do this on my own. I surrender my life to you. Will you come in and be king over it? It's that simple, but make no mistake. This isn't a half in, half out proposition. He gave everything for you and he will expect the same back. He's not interested in being your consultant or being your advisor when things get confusing or out of control in your life. He wants it all. Authority over every area of your life. Your work life, your home life, your family life, your sex life, your dating life, your your school life, every part of it. He invites, follow me. But then he follows it with, if anyone would come after me, he must die to himself and take up his cross. But just remember, he's not asking anything from you that he hasn't already done. And I can assure you that it will be worth it. Henry Nouwen, the great Christian thinker, once said about our king, for Jesus, there's no countries to be conquered. There's no ideologies to be imposed. There's no people to be dominated. There's only children, women, and men to be loved. This is a king who founded his kingdom on grace, established it in service and self-giving love. And the way that it's going to be advanced is through the grace, service, and self-sacrifice of his people. That's how you make your life matter. That's what it means to go hard after the kingdom, to seek the kingdom. That's what I want the second half of my life to look like. But when I stop and think about it, I realize as good as that sounds, the second half of my life, I don't know if that's true. 
I don't know if I have 30 more years. I don't know if I have 30 more minutes. And either do you. See, part of the reason I look tired today is not just because I'm 60. It's because I drove back from Oklahoma last night. Got home at midnight from the funeral of a friend and a really good man. Uh, His name was Brian, and he also turned 60 this summer. He was living his life just like the rest of us, probably thinking he was at the halfway point too. Building a house in Oklahoma, his daughter was about to, you know, in February will deliver his first grandchildren, twins. And about uh, four weeks ago, he started having fever at night and went to the doctor. They sent him to the hospital. He was diagnosed with COVID. And they told him he'd be there probably three or four days uh, while they got it under control. And two weeks later, they put him on a ventilator. And last Sunday, he went home to be with the Lord. And as tragic and as sad as it was at that funeral, it was a celebration. There was joy at that ceremony of life because Jesus had been king over this man's life. He was going hard after the kingdom of God. Probably one of the most generous men I've ever met. He and his wife had two children of their own. And then about 10 years ago, went over to Ethiopia and adopted three small children. He has since taken them back over there um, because he just has a love for the Ethiopian people. And his youngest daughter, who's from there, said last night at the funeral, my daddy was like Jesus in skin. I thought, what a wonderful thing to be said about you. He's been like a second dad to one of my sons, has encouraged him, has prayed for him, has prayed over him. Uh, His wife said that uh, their last time together in the hospital before they put him under for the ventilator, uh, they just sat in the hospital room, the two of them, and saying, what a beautiful name it is together. And I just, it was so kind of Jesus to put that on the set list this morning because I had no idea we were going to sing that song, but we sang it at the funeral last night. Um, And so that was really a sweet thing. But as funerals tend to do, just a reminder to me, Craig, keep the main thing, the main thing, because none of us know how much longer we have. But what we do know is that one day this life is going to end as we know it. And I want to be known for going hard after the kingdom, for going hard after the king, for giving him everything that I've got. Don't you? I want to close with an excerpt from a book by Steve Ledger entitled The Beauty of What Remains. He references a famous metaphor about life and death and ships coming in and out of harbors. And he says this, he says, I recently came across another metaphor for life and death that I love. It's modern. It involves a car instead of two ships, but it's every bit as true. A friend of mine read it at his father's funeral after he poured whiskey into the grave. He said this. Life is, not a journey to the gra- Life is not a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-preserved body. The goal is to skid in, broadside, tire smoking, body all dented, leaking fluids, your fuel gauge is on empty, thoroughly used up and worn out, and loudly proclaiming, holy crap, what a ride. And yes, I said crap in church, and I'm sorry about that, but don't you want that kind of adventure for your life? A life that matters like that, you have to seek first his kingdom. Go hard after the kingdom. But it starts by seeking and surrendering to the king. Because here's what I believe. 
I believe that God is still looking for a group of redeemed people who will go out into this world to build his kingdom with grace, with service, with sacrifice. Our God has a heart for all people. May we be a part of building his kingdom. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.